0: Croak, croak.
1: That's the unmistakable sound of the common frog. Right now, there's something extraordinary happening in ponds across the country. Frog spawn, late in February and March, is beginning to hatch, starting the intriguing process of developing from tadpoles into full size frogs. It's amazing to watch, and excitingly, something we can encourage in our very own garden. All we have to do is create a pond to find out how we can do just that we'll be talking to wildlife expert Kate Bradbury in today's show plus we'll hear how to protect your garden without harming the wildlife that you've encouraged in with garden writer Gene Vernon we'll be discussing how to care for your sweet peas and we'll be sharing more food growing tips So lots to come in this week's Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Let's start with ponds. So I'm joined now by Kate Bradbury. So Kate, lovely to speak to you. Lovely to speak to you too. So firstly, why are ponds so important for wildlife?
2: I think a pond is probably the single best thing you can do for wildlife in your garden where I live, there's a local park quite nearby and it doesn't have a pond. And so my pond and my neighbour's pond provide a drinking source for foxes, for the hedgehogs, that otherwise actually wouldn't be there because they're fantastic for keeping amphibian levels stable. We need to be providing ponds. It can't breed without ponds. But it's not just amphibians. It's so many invertebrates, so many insects breeding ponds as well get your back swimmers and your pond skaters and your water boatmen. And they're just amazing. And then on top of that, you know, you've got your birds that need to bathe. It's obviously also important to have a source of water for birds to drink. Hmm. It's just the centre of everything. That, in a nutshell, is what ponds do for wildlife. <laughs>
1: well, that's pretty comprehensive. <laughs> um, so someone now infused by your long list of benefits that ponds have, where would they begin if they wanted to make their own pond? How should they start?
2: If you've never had a pond before and you're thinking about having a pond, I think it's really important to actually look at your garden and work out where it can go and and just think about things like if you've got kids or if you don't have kids but you might be planning on having kids where will they play if you've got very young children that come around sometimes say grandchildren or whatever will you be able to portion off a bit of the garden or will it be in an area of the garden that's separate from the rest of it so that the kids can run free I mean obviously we're talking very young children you do have to sort of bear those things in mind My garden is just a 40-foot garden. It's very small and it's two-thirds pond. And that's because I'm quite happy that it took up so much (laughs) lawn space. Um, But, you know, if you want to play football on your your lawn, then you probably wouldn't be okay with having a huge pond taking up a large portion of your lawn. Mm. Do you want to put it in your best border? I think it's best to put a pond in partial sun but partial shade. So it gets sun in the morning, but then it's partially covered by the end of the day. So because frogs in particular because they spawn quite early in the year they need quite warm water so it's much better to have a pond that gets sun first thing in the morning there's things like that to consider as well a really shady pond will still attract wildlife a really sunny pond will probably attract more wildlife but you'll be having to top it up more often in summer once you've worked out where it's going to go then get a spade and start digging
1: I love the idea of replacing your lawn with a pond so <laughs> no mowing for you then.
2: <laughs> well I don't, I, I, I don't mow much anyway because I've got it's all wild flower meadow around the pond you can't actually see the pond in summer um so yeah but <laughs> there's not much meadow left it's uh, uh it's, it's mainly a pond.
1: When I was a, a lad which was a very hmm. long time ago one of the things that was the delight of my young life was pond dipping when i'd fish out specimens and look at them under my toy microscope what do you advise about access for children to be able to enjoy the pond
2: i think pond dipping is absolutely brilliant it's really fun i enjoy doing pond dipping as an adult i think the the main two main rules for pond dipping are always make sure there's an adult present and always kneel around the pond because you can't fall into a pond if you're kneeling because you're much more steady on your knees than you are on your feet especially if you're very very small so kneeling at a pond is really important
1: there's an option isn't there in your book you mentioned container ponds i wondered if you've seen some examples you could mention to inspire people with into making their own container pond
2: a container ponds are absolutely brilliant, especially if you're renting and you know you don't have permission to dig a pond or if you've got a very small garden or, or a courtyard or if you've got very small children and, and you just want to do something on a much smaller scale. I've actually got a container pond in my front garden, which also serves as a dog bowl and a fox bowl. I've made it using an old Belfast sink, I laid a bit of pond liner down at the base of the sink and then sealed it with silicon and then filled it up with water. And I've got a bit of brook lime growing in and a bit of water forget-me-not, which are two marginal plants. And then I've got some water soldiers in there as well, and a bit of hornwort, which is an oxygenator. I don't get amphibians using it, but I do have lots of flies, waterflies using the pond. There's a couple of water snails in there, and I'm hopeful. I'm holding out for dragonflies, actually, because it's in quite a sunny spot. And the other thing that's really useful about container ponds, and this is something that I, I sort of do, if you've got newts in your garden and frog spawn then the newts will often eat all of the frog spawn, which can be quite devastating, really. What I do on my allotment pond, where I've got newts and frogs, I think I had about 20 clumps of frog spawn this year, and I just popped one into a container pond where there are no newts, which just protected that one clump from being completely obliterated by the newts. And so you can have both. You can use container ponds as a little a little rescue bowl, really, almost, for tadpoles that might otherwise be eaten
1: very that's useful an, thing. It's an interesting thought. I was particularly struck by having a front garden pond. As you mm. might know, the RHS is very keen on people planting their front gardens, but I don't think we've recommended front garden ponds yet. So I think that's something of an omission we'll have to look oh, you into. Should. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a lovely thing as well. And as I say, you know, in the evenings, you know, foxes and even hedgehogs will come in and have a little drink from that pond as well. So it, it provides water, drinking water for wild animals as well.
1: I think uh, one of the things we were particularly interested in because it's something we found quite difficult when advising the public in the RHS is what sort of plants should a wildlife pond have in it?
2: Well I grow only native plants in my pond I just feel that there's so much out there about pond plants being invasive pond plants do grow at such a staggering rate and there's also lots of little queries on some invasive plants being named differently and so they're available in garden centres when perhaps they shouldn't be and I think actually to just avoid all doubt, just grow native plants in your pond.
1: And um, what are your favourite native plants? Where should people start?
2: Well, I absolutely love brooklime, um, and it sort of creates these rafts along the pond surface. It's a really, it's a really lovely plant. It's got these really small blue flowers um, and these lovely fresh green leaves. And newts actually lay eggs individually in brooklime leaves, so it's very important. I love water forget me not as well, which is slightly less vigorous than Brooklime, but also used by newts and also has lovely blue flowers hornwort is a really good oxygenator and i've got another oxygenator called cold pondweed which is really lovely which again it creates rafts but below the surface so it's almost like a little kelp forest beneath the surface of the water
1: we live in a very design orientated age i mean A wildlife pond, does it have to be utilitarian and good only for wildlife or can it be easy on the eye for a design conscious gardener?
2: Well I think my wildlife pond is easy on the eye. I mean it it has a dual purpose of serving wildlife but also makes me incredibly happy. Um, I've put a bench slap in the middle of the garden right next to the pond which takes up half of my remaining border just so I can sit there and look at it I think it's beautiful it's kidney shaped it's got two beaches on either end it's got loads of flowers growing in and around it it's gorgeous it's got very natural edging everyone's version of beauty is different isn't it and you know you should cater your pond to your desires so if you want to have a soft edges then do that's the best option for wildlife if you want to have a paved edge then that's okay too garden ponds are part of our garden at the end of the day and our gardens are a habitat that we create for ourselves as as much as anything else so um absolutely they can conform to our ideas of what makes a beautiful pond i just happen to think a wildlife pond is the most beautiful option of them all
1: thanks kate that's terrific You can get Kate's new book, How to Create a Wildlife Pond, from the RHS Online Bookshop now. We can do our utmost to encourage wildlife, but there's no point in doing all the hard work if we then undo it all by using nasty chemicals on pests. There are plenty of other ways to deter them, as award-winning wildlife writer Gene Vernon knows very well
3: in my opinion, pests are undervalued. I mean, many are actually essential levels in the food chain. So if you want to get in tune with nature, you basically need to encourage wildlife into your garden. And by wildlife, I don't just mean badgers and foxes and squirrels, which most gardeners probably wouldn't welcome. I'm talking about the mini beasts in the garden and in particular the pollinators Many of our pollinators are actually predators and part of the food chain are the insects that we regard as pests. So, for example, an obvious one would be ladybirds, which eat aphids or greenfly and blackfly. Those are deemed to be garden pests, the aphids and the blackfly. But by encouraging ladybirds into the garden, you are allowing the natural balance. It's a bug-eat-bug philosophy but it's happening all around you in the garden and it's really important to look after the little things so my tips really would be don't blast insects with pesticides because by doing so you're removing and destroying food for other creatures um, and also you're killing the very insects that we regard as the gardener's friends first of all ditch the chemicals and then i would say feed the soil To enhance the microbes and the soil mini-beasts, that's really important. And by feeding the soil, that's making your own compost and using that as a soil improver. And that's really great food for the worms. Encourage the pollinators, like the hoverflies, the ladybirds, the beetles, and the wasps. And I say wasps, everyone thinks, what do wasps do? But there's about 7,000 species of wasps in the UK, and most of them are predatory. They're eating the caterpillars and all sorts of garden insects that gardeners regard as pests. And they're not all those yellow and black stripy things that gatecrash our summer parties. They're parasitic wasps, tiny wasps, solitary wasps. Wasps are not the enemy. They're amazing, fascinating things. If you want to attract pollinators and the predatory pollinators into the garden and all other manner of wildlife you need to think about the plants that you grow and it's not just about planting plants that have flowers with pollen and nectar whilst that's really really important because most of our pollinators feed on pollen and nectar it's also important to remember the larval plants And by that, I mean the plants that our caterpillars of our butterflies and moths feed on. And there's a huge variety of those. And the interesting thing is that butterflies and moths are really specific in the plants that they need. Now, I know that we've got a couple of garden butterflies that many regard as pests. And those are what we commonly call the cabbage whites. And they can decimate our garden plants. So I'm not suggesting that those are a great thing. But I do think that we can live with them. If you wanted to deal with them kindly, you could plant bait plants around the garden in places where they won't do any damage. So you could plant some extra cabbages or some nasturtiums or something like that on the boundaries of the garden and lure the adult butterflies away so they won't lay their eggs on your prized cabbages. But having said that, if you monitor your plants and keep an eye on them, you do know when there are eggs and tiny caterpillars. And if you've got enough natural predators in the garden, those are food for the wasps and all sorts of other creatures. So going back to the plants, larval plants, actually a lot of our garden grasses, um, the lawn grasses and the wild grasses are really important for moths and butterflies, as are many of the wildflowers and indeed many of our hedge plants. There's a couple of moths whose populations are in steep decline because of the way we cut our hedges. So if you cut your hedges every other year or you alternate the side of the hedge that you cut each year, you give them a better chance. And those moths are um, really important pollinators and they're part of the biodiversity of your garden. Other things that you could do is to make a muddy puddle. Many of our mason bees need mud to make their nests, as do many of the garden birds. And I haven't really talked about birds But many of our garden birds are insect eaters and they also make great inroads on what many gardeners regard as pests. So blue tits, for example, if you've got a blue tit nesting in the garden, the parents are out foraging for food. And if they find that your cabbages and kale have got caterpillars, then they're going to be ecstatic and they're going to clear those caterpillars in minutes. If you have got a plant that's been badly affected by aphids, they, they do tend to zoom in on young growth at this time of year. You could, if you really wanted to do something, you could pinch out the growing tip or you could give it a quick splash with the hose and and wash them off and then when they're on the ground the ground feeding birds will pick them up and feed on them and if you do that you know every day for 3 or 4 days you'll find that what was a bit of a aphid epidemic has been much reduced Companion planting is another good way of dealing with garden problems. I don't like calling them pests, so. but if you plant pungent aromatic plants next to your garden crops that you want to protect, so things like carrots, carrots can sometimes be affected by carrot fly, well, rather than uh, dousing them in a toxic salad dressing, you could instead grow them alongside leeks or onions or garlic, And the smell of those plants actually deter the carrot fly adults from laying eggs on your carrots. But you can also do it with other plants. So companion planting isn't just about deterring pests. Sometimes you want to encourage pollinators into the garden to pollinate your crops. So for example, you might want to plant something to attract bumblebees near your runner beans. Bumblebees are really important pollinators of runner beans. So you could plant nasturtiums nearby. So it's not just about deterring pests. It's about growing things in harmony and harnessing the power of nature rather than working against it. Nature, we will never win against nature. Nature will always have the upper hand.
1: Thanks, Jean. When I first started in the RHS in the 1990s, my job was growing a trial of sweet peas, where we grew hundreds of them. Some of them as great, glorious bushes of sweet peas, and some by the very strange and peculiar and demanding technique used by exhibition growers, where you grow the poor old sweet pea as a single stem up the cane, side shooting it, cutting off the tendrils, to produce the most massive blooms. Surprisingly, this didn't put me off sweet peas, I just adore their delicacy and their fragrance. And this is the season when the sweet pea plants, which are reasonably hardy, are put outside to continue growing for their lovely summer flush of flowers. So I thought it would be a great idea to talk to sweet pea expert Roger Parsons about how to care for your plants, get the best flowers for cutting, and all about the perennial species of sweet peas.
4: They're just entrancing, a multitude of colors, wonderful fragrance, and there's just something about the poise of the flowers on the stem and the flower shape, which is most attractive. Well, in terms of having a good display, I suppose one of the first things that one needs to consider is how to show them off. And... And the old fashioned pea sticks, if you're just growing them for garden decoration, these seem to my mind to give the most attractive form. The way they do it, Wisley, in fact, is to have more of a, a cylinder of wire netting supporting what then becomes a, a vertical column of growth. So, how you support them is one of the factors to consider. And uh, as with many plants, having Good ground preparation helps. Early sowing and planting out is another factor that helps create a really good display. One other thing that people need to bear in mind is that at the start of the season with sweet peas they can have wonderful long stems and then they find that these start to get shorter. It can happen quite quickly. And this is particularly the case in hot, dry conditions. So the way to keep good stem length is to make sure that you keep your plants well watered. If you're growing in containers, which some people do, then on hot sunny days, they might need watering twice a day. And of course, container grown plants will need a a weekly feed of something like tomato fertiliser whatever has a lot of potassium in it, whereas in ordinary garden soil, chances are they won't need any feeding. They're legumes, so they fix their own nitrogen, and that means that they can grow quite healthily. Another thing that concerns people is whether they need to keep cutting the flowers or not there is quite a widespread belief that you have to keep cutting in order to maintain flower production. So what you need to do there is not get anxious about cutting the flowers as soon as they come out. Leave them on the plants. Enjoy the benefit of the garden. It's only when the flowers start to fade that you need to remove the uh, decaying flowers, deadhead them, as we call it. Don't let them even think about going to seed, but don't be too concerned about cutting the flowers as soon as they come out in order to maintain flower production. There are different types of sweet peas. If one was wanting to have them primarily for cut flower production, the spencer type are the ones to go for. These have the longest stem, so That's quite important depending how you're using the stems in your floristry work or just popping them in a vase in the house. Um, It also helps in that if conditions are very hot and dry and they do start getting shorter, you're still left with quite good stems, good enough for cutting. The perennial species that people mostly know is the everlasting pea. These usually come in about three colours. There's a mauve, there's a pale pink, and there's also a white one. They have a couple of benefits apart from coming up each year. One is the fact that they tend to flower a bit later in the season than sweet peas do, so that can be very useful. And the reason that species is so popular is that once established, it is so easy to grow. In fact, you have a job to get rid of it, you know. Now, another perennial species, which really deserves to be in everybody's garden, is what I call the spring pea, Lathyrus vernus. So these flower, usually in April, depending what part of the country you're in, they're very self-supporting, come up each year, only grow to about 12, 15 inches high, 30, 40 centimetres. They die down after flowering. If you remove the flower heads, you'll sometimes get a second flush in July. And it's not unknown that you can even get a third flush in October, in the autumn. And even when it's not flowering, it has uh, quite attractive foliage. So that's the other perennial, which many people will know, but is definitely worth growing.
1: A definitive guide to sweet peas and other Lathyrus species, written by Roger, will be published in May. It's the latest in our series of RHS plant monographs. See our show notes for links. As Roger mentioned, the sweet peas are known for being fantastically fragrant. But let's end today by focusing on flavour. Here's Sylvia Travers with the next instalment of our Growing Food at Home series.
5: So we're going to talk about strawberries today. The one I'm the most familiar with is a variety called Cambridge Favourite, which is a really old heritage variety. It's still around, but also they're really good modern varieties. There's also ones called Everbears, which will fruit repeatedly through the summer. Another familiar one is a variety called El Santa, which is grown as a commercial variety, but it's also available to buy for home growing as well. If you're going to grow strawberries for the first time, I would say... Ask your friends, have they got any strawberry plants in their gardens? Chances are most people do, especially if they've got an allotment, everyone's got strawberries. Because strawberry plants throw out things called runners, which are little baby plants that are thrown out from the main parent plant throughout the season. And these can be cut off and rooted into a pot and you can grow them on to get your own plants. And it's a really easy, quick way of getting strawberries. If you don't have friends who've got strawberry plants, you can buy them from a local nursery or garden centre or online. When you buy them, generally they're dispatched either in autumn or early spring. The autumn plants, you are best potting them on and putting in either in a cold frame or a cold greenhouse for the winter. And then they will start growing. You'll see little new green leaves coming in the centre. And once they fill their pots, you can put them straight into the ground or in a bigger pot or a raised bed or even a hanging basket. Likewise, spring dispatched plants, you can pot on too or you can put them straight out into a raised bed or whatever, you're going to finally keep them in. They like a lot of food and water. Strawberries mainly water, isn't it? So they like to be well hydrated and they will keep cropping. You know, they'll flower quickly and they'll also flower and fruit at the same time. So the more you pick, the better it is because then they'll start wanting to swell more strawberries. The thing most people who know about strawberries will find are birds, love them. So once the fruit starts turning red... The birds will find them and they'll start pecking at them. So, you kind of want to preempt that a little bit. Netting is great because it stops the birds getting direct contact with the fruit. Use netting that the birds can't get tangled in. So, you can either buy special netting or you can use old net curtains because it's only for a temporary period. It's not going to be for all the time. So, raise your granny's net curtains. Likewise, the fruit doesn't like to get itself wet because it goes moldy. So, if you can try and mulch it with something, be it some nice spent mushroom compost. People often say, you know, use straw, but I find straw creates another problem in itself, especially if it gets wet, it goes a bit slimy. But also, if the seed heads in that straw, you'll get straw plants. You know, you'll get a succession of uh, little plant that's coming up, so you want to avoid that. So anything that will keep it dry and the fruit clean. But again, the more you pick, the less likely you should have fruit sitting there getting overripe on the plant. I will also talk about alpine strawberries, because actually, if I was going to choose between types of strawberries, I'd go for alpines all the time. You know They're a bit different. You can't buy them in the shops because they're super perishable. And they're a bit better behaved in the sense they don't throw out runners like standard strawberries do. They bulk up. The main plant themselves gets fatter, so you can divide them. You can either grow them from seed, they grow really easily from seed, or you can buy plants online. And this fruit is gorgeous. They're tiny. They're about the size of a hazelnut. They're little taste bombs. They're really sweet, sharp, lemony almost, with a little fizz at the end. And also the birds don't seem to go for them because they're hidden under the leaves. And also, they're more tolerant of shade, so you can grow them in a little shady corner under a tree and they'll naturalise quite happily under there. And you'll be picking strawberries from sort of midsummer well on into autumn. I guarantee you won't be disappointed with them.
1: Thanks, Sylvia. And it was especially interesting to hear about alpine strawberries. They're a wonderful little plant that I like to grow in the back garden. They're great ground cover for shady places. It's true, you have to spend a long time picking enough to get a plate full, but once in a while it's worth doing. And that's it for this week. In next week's show, we'll be tackling the scourge of many gardeners' lives. Plastic. We'll look at what's being done to reduce how much is out there and explore how we can all use less plastic in the garden. For more on today's show, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. All that's left to say from me, Guy Barter, is goodbye and happy gardening.